Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. With me today is my regular co-host, Cleveland Area Attorney and Republican Factotum, Jay Carson. Good morning. Hey, Jay, how are you doing? I'm, well, I'm, I'm, I'd like to say I'm tan rested and, and ready after a, a couple weeks off, but I'm, I'm neither tan nor rested, but I suppose I'm ready. But you so. are ready. Yeah, it, yes. it, it, it is nice to be back after, after a short break. And, and by the way, about that, folks, before we get started with the show, as you know, if you're a regular listener, the last two weeks, Trey has been hosting the show with two of our uh, potentially new first non-guy politics guys co-host, the first Athena King and then Alexandra Philandra. And we need to get your feedback now. We have, we have our thoughts on it, but of course, you know, we do the show for you and we want to know what you think about both Athena and Alexandra, and also uh, about, uh, you know, the rest of us as well. So I put together a really short, simple survey that takes, I think, two or three minutes at most to fill out. And that's if you're being kind of verbose about your comments and you don't have to put in comments. But if you could uh, let us know what you think, that would be incredibly helpful. And I will put a link to the survey in the show notes. And so we would really appreciate your feedback on that. Thanks so much. It's like American Idol, you know, or, or it, The it, Voice. It's like you get you get to choose uh, America's Next Podcast Superstar. Yeah, it, it really is. In fact, I was going to start off by saying it's time to choose, but I thought that <laughs> would be a little hokey, so I didn't do it. Um, one other thing before I get started, also, I was actually interviewed on a podcast uh, called Daily's Well, which is a podcast about philosophy, politics, current affairs, literature, and film uh, based in the UK. And the host of the podcast, Patrick O'Connor, actually is a listener to this show. And he, he contacted me a while back and said, would you like to come on and, and talk about you know, yourself and political philosophy and all that? And I said, well, you're sure. Absolutely. I'd be happy to do that. And we had a great conversation about sort of my intellectual origins. Uh, I, I talked a lot about Edmund Burke, as I talk about Edmund Burke whenever I can. Yeah, I thought you'd like that. Uh, John McCain, uh, the possibility of socialism in America. I am not rating it as high. And uh, of course, Donald Trump and the upcoming elections. A lot of stuff. It was a great time. I really enjoyed it. So I would encourage you to check it out. It, again, the show is Staley's Well, and I'll have a link to the show as well in the show notes. All right. So you know, I thought we'd start off with the story that's really been dominating the news this week, and that's, of course, the alleged murder of, well, now it's not alleged anymore, uh, of Washington <laughs> Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi in Saudi Arabia's Istanbul consulate. Now, the Turkish government has been conducting an investigation, and they claim to have audio of Khashoggi's torture and murder, though they haven't released it or, to our knowledge, even shared it with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo when he was in Turkey this week. Now, U.S. intelligence officials seem nearly certain that uh, he was murdered with the full knowledge of the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia, who's Crown Prince, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, as he's sometimes called. It's the cool, the cool yeah, people MBS, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, and earlier this week, there was this talk that the Saudis would release a statement saying that, yes, there was a role and he's dead and it was the result of rogue operators. And in fact, that's exactly... What happened yesterday when the Saudi government announced that Khashoggi died after uh, essentially a fist fight at the consulate and that, yeah, big brawl and that 18 Saudis had been arrested for further investigation and that the deputy director of their intelligence agency had been dismissed. Now, President Trump, who has been a lot of people would say has been slow to condemn the Saudis for this, uh, did say that, well, he he found this explanation credible, but then he added, Saudi Arabia has been a great ally, but what's happened is unacceptable. Uh, and, and also, I should mention, there's been a lot of talk about, well, why is why has the president been so slow to condemn? And some people have suggested, well, it's about protecting a key U.S. ally. And there's definitely, in the Trump administration, has been this move toward uh, Saudi Arabia to sort of counterbalance the move away from Iran. And they're the two major powers in the area. But also, there are some people suggest, you know, when the Trump organization was in big trouble in the 90s, the Saudis in some ways really helped to kind of bail them out or at least be helpful. And since Donald Trump has been president, they have spent very lavishly at Trump properties. And some people are suggesting a connection there. And then on the right, I should mention, there's been, you know, 
some sort of, uh, I guess you'd call it an anti-Khashoggi campaign. There's some people saying, you know, well, he's been kind of tied to terrorist groups. I mean, Donald Trump no, Jr. Not, not, not kind of tied. I mean, he's very much allied with them. I was very much allied with the, the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. The Muslim Brotherhood. I mean, well. The, the, Which, it, again, I might say is, is not officially a terrorist group, but is linked to terrorist right. groups. So, uh, but I mean, you have things like, you know, Donald Trump Jr. who tweeted that Khashoggi was tooling around Afghanistan, as he put it, with Osama bin Laden in the 1980s. And he didn't really, you know, mention at all that, well, this was in the context of writing a story and it wasn't like he was of a follower of bin Laden's in any way. So obviously there's a lot going on here. Jay, what do you make of all this? I'm particularly interested in how you would evaluate President Trump's handling of this situation, which has obviously come under a lot of fire from, you know, from the left. Well, I think I think the the, the fire against Trump on this is is sort of weird with the, you know, the typical um, criticism from the left of of foreign policy of the right is this, you know, what they say lack of nuance. Uh, you know what I mean? Everything's black and white. You're good guys or bad guys. You're with us or against us. Um, and I think in this case, uh, uh, Trump has been. I, I think it's. I think it's appropriate to to act the way he he has, in that it's he's shown uh, sufficient. This is there's a sufficient gravity to this. Uh, for example, I mean, sending Pompeo, um, Steve Mnuchin, uh, then recently withdrew from an appearance he was going to be making in Saudi Arabia, also. Um, uh, and and given this, okay, let's let's get the facts. Um, uh, and and see what happens. I, I think they 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 knew the facts, or at least the basic fact uh, that he was killed by the Saudis, um, uh, or or someone operating, if not at the you know express behest of of uh, uh, the crown prince, then then someone certainly allied with them and allied with the Saudi uh, Saudi government. Um, but I you know I I think it's you know this is a little bit of diplomacy. Um, do you condemn them right out of the gate and say this is horrible before you get all the facts or sort of let it play out and uh, let them sort of uh, come back with a, a mea culpa? Uh, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't have done this. This is this is terrible. We regret it. And then extract a price from them, uh, you know, and sort of, you know, welcoming them back into our good graces eventually. Um I mean, I mean, I guess you yep. see where I'm going there. So yeah, I, no, I, I, mean, I, I think this, yeah. this sort of the, the, the knee jerk of of. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly what Trump, you know, you know, should we bomb Saudi Arabia or I mean, or uh, sanction them immediately? Uh, uh, no, I, I understand not, that. But, but yeah. I, I think I think I think, yeah, sanctions are something we can talk about down, you know, as we as we make sure we have all the facts. So I think to me, the difficulty is separating uh, Donald Trump rhetorically from Donald Trump substantively on this issue. And that that's always something of a struggle for me because I thinking about some of it, it's more to me. What I have trouble with is how he said what he said, but I certainly agree. I mean, you know, the idea of, well, we shouldn't jump to conclusions about this until we have the facts. I mean, how it's hard to argue well, I, with. I, I mean, but I, and I wouldn't, I, yeah, and I wouldn't even say. Um, I think it's fine to jump to conclusions because <laughs> I think again, I think we know the, the basic conclusion. Yeah. Um. But but I think it 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 plays better. Um. And and it you know when you're dealing with with an ally and and they are an ally. Um. That that instead of of jumping out and and condemning them, we do this what we've apparently done, diplomatic outreach and sort of cajole them into um, uh, coming forward and admitting that that uh, this is a a big problem. They really screwed up, um, and now you know they will have to do something, uh, whether that's something publicly or or, or privately to indicate uh, just how sorry they are about that, and in order to make sure they understand that. Any more of this type of of behavior um, uh, could cost them severely. Yeah, and but I guess to me, I don't I don't know that they're necessarily getting this message. And so, I, you know, this to me is part of a. Sometimes it feels like part of a larger sense that you know Donald Trump has a great deal of sympathy for autocratic rulers, and uh, uh, 
you know, he said obviously a lot of things that are very anti-press. And I mean, it's hard. You can't divorce that from the larger context. When in a rally, I think just last week, uh, you know, he says, well, anyone who you know can body slam a reporter, or, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. That's my kind of yeah. guy. And th that's the sort of thing. And I think he's never, no, that's not fair. I, I would say, I was going to say, I think he's never really appreciated how powerful his words are and how they need to be tempered. He, I think he totally appreciates that. and He just doesn't care. And, and that to me is, is hugely problematic. Uh, but, you know, in, in another sense, it occurs to me that, you know, that we talk about MBS and, you know, a, a lot of people have felt like, well, here's this young reformer type guy and he's going to take Saudi Arabia in a new direction. And that, in fact, is the big bet that the Trump administration has right. made. And they turned, I mean, it was his first foreign visit after he became president. And so pretty clearly they're saying, well, we're going to move away from this theocratic regime in Iran, and right. we're going to put a lot more of our eggs in the basket of Saudi Arabia, our ally. And, you know, to me, it, it seems like there's a lack of appreciation for history here. I mean, this, this whole thing about people being taken in by the, you know, the promise of reformers in autocratic right. regimes. Uh, you got, you know, Chavez, Mugabe, Gaddafi, Castro. I mean, we can go back as far as you want. And it seems like that we just, you get burned every single time because it's not about the individual. It's about the system that they're in. And I think whenever you put too many, too much of your, your faith in any one person in that sort of regime, you're going to end up regretting it. Well, I think I think though we need to take a look at a, a clear-eyed, um, you know, rationalist uh, uh, sort of sort of look at what we're dealing with in the Middle East, and and the, the choice there has always been between bad and worse, um, as far as who we're going to to support. Now there are there are some places, uh, uh, you know, for example, Jordan, which is which is sort of a, a liberal monarchy, if you will. Um, uh, that that seems you know pretty and uh, uh, Egypt, which uh, again by Middle Eastern standards one would would consider moderate liberal. By our standards, would we would consider it a, a military dictatorship? Um, it, it's 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 a different world over there, and I think we have to be cognizant of of our ability to change those um, the culture of those places and 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 the difficulties in trying. I mean, if you look at the the big you know George W Bush experiment um, was this this belief of if you you planted a seed of democratic government in the Middle East uh, people would take to it and they would say man this is this is the best thing ever and it, it would spread and we, you know we tried that in Iraq um, I would say the experiment isn't isn't you know the results aren't completely in uh, and you know may not be completely in for fifty or a hundred years but um, it, it's at least shown that. It's it's not just an automatic of of okay now people are voting right. uh, now that they've got the vote they're going to have a uh, as we understand it liberal Western style democracy with uh, you know minority rights and due process and and uh, you know uh, restrained power in the government and all that sort of thing. So yeah. uh, again, I look at it as um, well. But yeah, Again, we, yeah, I, I, th I think you're right about there not being a lot of great options in the region. And of course, part of the, the tragedy is at one point and not in the not too distant past, Turkey was, a you know, was it that's the largest economy in the region. And it was a, a, a relatively free democratic regime. But since Erdogan took over in you know, around 2014, that's that's changed. So our options have just gotten worse, essentially. And but I understand your sort of real politic argument. But I also think here's where, where, you know, there's that, that old saying, hypocrisy is a tribute, vice pays to virtue, right? And I say that a lot. Yeah, yeah we are, and, and I think there's there's really something to that. While you 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 acknowledge that we have to do these things in the real world, but just simply abandoning abandoning any pretense of caring about the values that matter to us. I think that that's, I think that that's a really bad thing to do. And that's one of the things that I feel that the Trump administration has done. And so when people say, well, the Obama administration, when you look at the substance, did kind of the same thing, say, yes, but they didn't just essentially just say, well, human rights don't matter. And so in some sense, Saudi Arabia has been uh, a good ally, but to call them a great ally and, and to, to embrace 
the Saudis, I think is, is a big mistake because they are responsible for so much awful stuff. You know, the, their ties, their ties to 9-11, sure. their ties to Islamic extremist terrorism. And, and of course, their, you know, their involvement in this horrific civil war in, in Yemen, which, by Yemen. the way, we are supporting logistically. You know, that, that to me, I think there's some real problems here. No, absolutely, and and I think I think what you what you got at earlier is the uh, Trump, the the person uh, who who just sort of spouts off versus Trump, the the policy. Um, I think the the former is the uh, again he says oh they're great out because he just says stuff like that yeah. you know what I mean great is sort of his his go to adjective for for whatever uh, uh, you know perhaps he, at least he didn't say they were a very great ally. Um, but, uh, uh, so I, I mean, I think looking at, at the policy of, of what, what did the U S actually do? What have we actually done in terms of, um, you know, dispatching a, a secretary of state there immediately, uh, working with the Turks, um, withdrawing at the visit of a cabinet official, uh, and, and saying that there are going to be consequences. Um, I, I think those are all the proper steps to take, uh. So but what what do you make of the fact that Turkey, you know, says they have this this audio evidence, but yet they apparently didn't play it for Mike Pompeo and they haven't released it in any way? I mean, does that seem what, what what's your what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's just sort of uh, something that I mean, look, I, I don't know. Um, it's there. There's no way that I would, you know, we would have. So this is pure speculation. Um, my sense is that is something that was kind of put together for uh, domestic release um, in Turkey and other places to, you know, show how bad the Saudis are. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's to, to play to their their home base and, and others around the Middle East um, as opposed to, you know, actually having actual audio. So you don't think, I, you I don't think, think it's a bluff? I don't bluff. think they do. Okay. I think it's a bluff. And, and here's the other thing. I there's the, the the bizarre sort of thing of like, okay, if you actually have audio that you're bugging all the inside of like a, a foreign consulate, um, yeah, you know, that, wow, that's, do you, do that's an issue. That? Yeah. Yeah. That's, um, it. you know, cause again, if the, the Saudis, I hear that I'm the first thing is like, Hey, we should really, we should really check this place. Um, which again, you'd assume that the Saudis check the place daily, right? I mean, that's, that's how, how this, you know, these things work. And so wasn't there, it, that reminds me, wasn't there, I seem to recall that, uh, a, a U.S. embassy. This is back in the Cold War days. In in Russia, we'd built a new embassy or a new building, and and it was so riddled with bugs that the Russians had put it in that we essentially had to just abandon the building or something. Yeah, like yeah, that, you yeah. Know? But uh, but yeah, that that raises a concern. You know, in in terms of coolest, let's... coolest thing I ever did, just because I I have you know sort of a you know I love spy stuff, but yeah, we're we're the um, we installed. Uh, I think it was we did it or the Russians did it to us like especially installed a bug in their in their copy machine that sort of just like copied everything if i found it actually you know let's talk a little bit about consequences because the administration has said from the beginning that if you know if this is demonstrated there will be consequences now there are a couple ways this go they could accept the well rogue operators kind of things they're reforming but it seems that like I said in, in the intro, that the intelligence community finds this extraordinarily hard to believe. And if Donald Trump accepts the conclusions of his intelligence community over the Saudis, which is an open question, given the fact that he's not necessarily inclined to do that all the time, now, what we can do to punish Saudi Arabia, it's, it seems to me that there are three basic options here. Uh, we can First off, sanction the specific officials that we believe are responsible, and those are the financial system sanctions, essentially. That be that's an easy one, actually. Yeah, and that that's there's a there's a lot of authority for the president to do that right away, and and without you know, that's that's pretty simple and straightforward and very targeted. Then there's also the potential of halting or delaying U.S. arms sales to Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, they're the you know they're the single largest buyer of of U.S. arms. That that's kind of a, a broader thing. And then thirdly, or maybe along the lines with that, we could withdraw some of our logistical support for Saudi operations in that civil war in Yemen. So I think those are the three main options. What do you think in, uh, in terms of what seems most appropriate? Well, you know, this, I heard uh, someone on TV, and I, I, I forget who exactly, um, 
but they made the, the good point of how this, this probably plays out. And, and this is often sort of how diplomacy works is the Saudis will come up with some sort of lie slash cover story. Um, we'll, we'll know it's a lie. They know it's a lie. <clears throat> Most of the international community knows it's a lie. Um, and you're sort of seeing that with the, well, there was this brawl because, you know, brawls yeah. just happen at consulates. Um, uh, it's like, you know, you walk into the consulate, get in a bar fight kind yeah. of thing. Shogi came in with the, yeah, ready to fight. I mean, yeah, it's ridiculous. Of um, uh, so, um, and, and we will, uh, publicly accept that and say, okay, um, uh, make sure it doesn't happen again. Uh, and there will be some public, um, uh, consequence. And I think the sanctioning those involved, again, that's sort of an easy, easy to do. You know what I mean? You're not, uh, uh you're not necessarily harming the relationship. Uh, uh, you're, you're still extracting some sort of a public price. Um, there might be some uh, room for the, uh, the administration to walk back support for the Saudi operations in Yemen, which is maybe something they want to do anyway. Right. Yeah. So there's there's that, and then I think there's also going to be sort of the, the private discussion, because um, I do think the Saudis realized that that this was a big a big screw up, um, and you know so again this was someone else uh, made the comment, um, and then again I I forget who because it's just been that kind of a week, um, that that look when when other autocrats uh, have people assassinated, uh, you know be it Putin, Putin um, yeah. uh, or or <laughs> or others. They don't do it in their own embassy, their own consulates. Right. You know, you uh, you at least have sort of plausible deniability. Um, uh, but uh, the Saudis uh, apparently did did not. You know, th- this was just kind of a botched operation all the way around. Yeah, it, I mean, um, I, I buy that it was a botched operation, certainly because they wouldn't have wanted to be discovered in the, in the first right. place. But I don't buy that. But, but it I mean, was, I guess just just the idea, though. How do you not be discovered, right? I yeah. mean, you you know, he walks he goes in, in and, and doesn't come out. Yeah. and doesn't come out. Yeah. So it was really just a bad decision from the, from the top down, essentially. But but more than and again, you know, so people say, well, you you guys always focus on the, the strategic, the kind of the politics part of it. But there's a, you know there's a there's an ethical morality type of issue here. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's reprehensible to, to kill, well, to kill any innocent person and especially, you know, to, to kill somebody who's a, a, perhaps a political, not perhaps a political opponent. I mean, this is the kind of thing that is just completely repugnant to our values. And I would argue that in addition to just sanctioning specific Saudi officials, which find that something we need to make that a strong statement of how important those values are to us by saying, Hey, you know, we are willing to take big steps that say how important this is. And if you think that we have nowhere else to go, but you, and that these values don't matter to us, well, we're going to, we're going to hold up some arms sales. We're going to reconsider some of this stuff. And then maybe if you feel there's a threat of your regime being slightly destabilized, that uh, maybe that will cause you to think again, because honestly, I don't think that some individual sanctions in and of themselves are going to have much of an effect. I mean, no, we, we've I, seen no and again, I don't, I don't, I don't think they would either. I think what what has more effect is that behind the scenes conversation. Yeah, and, and I, I don't know. I, I think I doubt, I doubt that, and I doubt that because just of the nature of the regime. And I think unless there's, uh, you know, persuasion or you know, looking deep into his eyes, as was it George W. Bush with Putin has yeah. said, you know, finding the inner humanity or something. No, these, these autocrats. I mean that maintenance of their power is the main thing and the only really lever that you have to push on. And, and that's the only way I think we're going to get any sort of real response is if we say, Hey, we can, you know, we can make that a little more iffy. And then they'll say, well, maybe we should not be killing American journalists or any journalists, certainly, because obviously there was a calculation made here that this was to the benefit of the administration because Khashoggi was a threat to the stability of the regime because of its articles being translated into Arabic and being read and say, well, hey, we can be a bigger threat to the stability of your regime. So you might want to think again. And that's, I think, the message we need to send. Right. And well, this is, again, it's, it's, they thought they could get away with it. Yeah. Which Um, is insane. It sounds like. It was just a really bad thing. Yeah. I mean, the last thing I would, I would mention is, and again, I go back just to the real politics stuff and, you know, the mantra that, that I, preach on a lot of these kind of things uh is that you got to do what you can where you can uh, you know what i mean yep. um and and in, in some relationships we have more power to to move uh people towards towards you know the uh the moral place we want them to be 
and others we just don't. Um, no, that's, that's, and if, that's a great if, point. And if you look, if you look at, I mean, look at uh, World War II. Our, our, you know, one of our biggest allies was a was a guy named Joe Stalin, who was was a horrible, terrible, uh, no good person. Yeah. Um, certainly on par with Hitler, and uh, we made the the strategic decision that we've got to work with them uh, to deal with the the bigger threat. Yeah. Um, so no, that, that's a great point, and you know, I, I I'm glad you brought that up. I because... mean, you could say, well, okay, we're not in a world war now, but but yeah. it's it's there again. It's a similar right. No, I, I I totally agree, but and I would argue that a lot of people uh, are don't understand that we don't need the Saudis in the in the same way that we did in the 70s or even the 80s, and that they need us more than we need them and that we actually have a lot more leverage than a a lot of people might think. And again, that gets back to my argument of, you know, when you go all in or mostly all in with one player in a region, uh, there are a lot of reasons to dislike, say, a Henry Kissinger type of person. But that idea of sort of playing off powers against one another in a region, there's a good sort of real politic type of argument yeah. for doing that. And when you just say, well, we're, these are our guys, we're going to go with them. You take away a lot of your, your leverage essentially, which is why I think that the Trump move so much more towards Saudi Arabia is a, sort of a geopolitical mistake. Okay. All right. Well, who would, who would you, who would you move towards though? Well, I think, I think that the Obama, the Surely Obama choice. move toward toward looking at uh, Iran a little more and trying to bring them into the, you know, into the discussion if for no other reason than kind of a counterbalance to, you know, a counterbalance to Saudi Arabia. And I think that's what the Obama administration was trying to do with the, with the nuclear deal and other things. And, and there are reasons to, you know, there are certainly reasons to think that that might be successful long-term, although it's problematic in the short-term given the nature of the regime. Like you said, we don't have a lot of good options here in the region, Yeah, you know? All right, well, let's move to domestic politics. Uh, the Treasury Department this week announced that the federal budget deficit for fiscal year 2018, which ended last month, rose to $779 billion. Uh, that's a nearly, that's a yeah, it's a nearly 17% increase, too, from 2017. And by far, the biggest contributor to this increase was a big decline in corporate tax revenues in the wake of the tax cuts passed in December of 2017. Um, And just as a reminder, under that law, the top corporate tax rate went from 35 to 21 percent. And what we've what we saw at Treasury's reporting is that corporate taxes or receipts have fallen around a third from the same period last year. And economists, of course, of course, aren't surprised by this because they pretty much unanimously, whether right or left, said that these cuts are not going to come anywhere close to paying for themselves, which a lot of congressional Republicans were claiming at the time that this went through. And to me, Jay, this made me think about when when you and I were, were, were coming up uh, politically uh, and we both sort of mocked the Democrats as the tax and spend party, right? We sure did. Uh, but, you know, but after this massive Republican tax cut and a budget, by the way, that just recently passed because essentially it boosted spending, it sure seems to me that modern Republicans are something even worse and more irresponsible than the tax and spend party. They're the borrow and spend party. Oh, no. I mean, I mean, am I, am I wrong? Do you think I'm, I'm, oh, I'm you're, wrong? You know, you're, you're right in so, and so wrong in some ways. Um, okay. Yeah, I, I would say, listen, I. I as most Republicans, um, I think have have had a a continued continued disappointment probably since the the George W. Bush administration. Or most conservatives, that's probably the better way to, to phrase it. Uh, in that the party has seemed to, uh, if not abandoned, then then certainly moved to the back burner. Fiscal responsibility issues. Um, I mean, there, there were several rationales for doing it. Uh, you know, one was, uh, look, we just got to do this to, to get elected and, and trying to, to do these things that would really make a, a difference budget wise entitlement reform and so forth. It's third rail kind of stuff. We just can't touch it. Um, uh, there was also the sense that, uh, I think during the Bush presidency that, uh, look, we can be the, you know, uh, kinder, gentler, compassionate conservative, um, uh, by, you know, creating a new uh, Medicare benefit on, on prescription drugs, which was, you know, huge. Um, 
uh, and and that somehow then we'll get we'll get credit for this, you know, and uh, but but you won't. I mean, it, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, so I think there's been a frustration among conservatives, fiscal conservatives, and this also was was evident in when Trump was running. That look, this guy is not someone who's committed to shrinking the size of government. Um, uh, but uh, but here we are. Um, so I, I, I guess my my response on the uh, the deficit thing is, is one, okay, it wasn't entirely unexpected. And two, this is sort of, you gotta, you gotta spend money to make money. Um, and if you look at the growth estimates, which the CBO, uh, again, it was about a month or so uh, revised upward and they've, they, this is the second, uh, second time they've revised it upward. Um, it, growth has, has exceeded expectations. Um, and the economy has, has done better than, than expected. In terms of job creation, in terms of wage growth, uh, it's like two point eight percent wage growth. Um, so, so look these these things, and, and you're going to take this initial hit in the first year when you change it. Uh, but as time goes on, and and and, and as you mentioned, uh, will it pay for itself? Well, it's certainly not going to pay for itself in the first uh, first year. Um, over the course of ten years, and again, the estimates were if, if growth averages three percent it does pay for itself and look we've had a, a you know over a year of, of essential four percent growth so uh i i share the frustrations your frustration uh that we don't have enough fiscal responsibility and we're spending too much uh that said i i've, I've i think it's just a, a, a structural philosophical difference as you look at uh tax cuts as a uh expenditure uh, whereas I look at it as this is just getting money back to to the people it it, it belongs to in the first place. Right. Well, yeah, I would I would definitely take issue with that. I, that I think that you know that gets to a fundamental ideological difference. As as I I would not to put words in your mouth, but right. it, my my sense is that you would say is that uh, it is it is my money and therefore the, the it should not be it should not be taken unless you know that that uh unless there is i don't know some extraordinarily good reason but the the benefit of the doubt should go to me in terms of yeah. anything right and i would That's argue it, yeah. and i would argue that uh that those who have more have a social responsibility and so therefore that that kind of it's my money that's that's fundamentally a a, a wrong headed way of looking at it is that i have a response i would look at it in terms of responsibilities and it seems like you look at it in terms of kind of property rights yeah I don't know, but right. uh, but yeah, I, I don't think we disagree in the sense that we both would say that this is incredibly irresponsible. But our solutions would be would be very different. Now, I would more than quibble with you about the potential of these things to uh, even come close to paying for themselves. And I think past history has demonstrated that. And another thing I would point out is that whenever these things are uh, these estimates are made by the people who are pushing for this, they have incredibly optimistic best case scenario growth estimates from these things that almost never come out. They never use kind of like the media, even the median estimates or the low no, end but estimates. In the, but in this case, the growth estimates, you know, if you're looking at the CBO and the um, uh, sort of the Federal Reserve reporting, um, you know, the, the, the folks who were, who were sort of naysaying this and saying, no, 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 you can never achieve more than uh, 2% growth. Uh, it, it's, They've been proven wrong, and they've been, uh, and and I, we've I think we've even said at the time, of, let's check back in a year where the growth numbers are, and they're pretty good. Now, are they going to stay? Is it going to stay at four percent for ten years? No, of course not. Um, but but then, uh, but then there's the other problem, you know, the the, the, famous, the post hoc fallacy, right? I mean, how can we say that? And it just a simple, simply assuming that well, this policy was what caused this growth. And I, and I think that there's, you know, that's certainly questionable. There are a lot well, of other factors. Sure. And sure. There's always other factors, but if, if you look at timing, uh, if you look at, um, you know, this is, this is not just, uh, you know, post hook fallacy tends to be something where you can't draw a, a definite connection between uh, what happened and, and uh, the result, uh, the, the, the cause and the effect. Uh, in this case, the, the, the cause is essentially giving a whole lot of money back uh, to uh, corporations. Right. Um, and again, we, sh we should note that uh, individual tax uh, receipts are more or less what they were before. Um, right. So right. the changes to the, the individual tax, you know, hasn't seemed to play a, a, a big role in this. Um, 
But but you know, the, look, this and you and I both both talked about this that we're in a position strategically where if you want to stay competitive in the world, uh, the U.S. would have to address the way it, it did its corporate taxes. Mm-hmm. So it's it's also a matter of, of of look if this is a long-term investment in keeping countries here or keeping companies here. Uh, and getting investment to be spent uh, in the U.S. as opposed to keeping money uh, or investing overseas. Um, and the last point, I think, this is, I thought about this the other day of a good way to frame it. Democrats were, were very much in favor of, you know, stimulus spending, right? Um, in some ways, if you want to say that tax cuts are a form of spending, then what it is, it's it's a stimulus, but the, the way that, that that stimulus money is spread around is it's up to uh, the market as opposed to up to the government. And I think the market does a better better job of allocating that stimulus money to places where it's going to make a difference than the government does. But, and, and just to be clear, you're, you're not saying that you think that this was a uh, uh, that, that this is sort of being fiscally responsible on the part of Republicans and that we don't have to worry about anything. You would be in favor of kind of more of a Paul Ryan ish sort of solution, which would which would couple uh these sort of massive corporate tax cuts with equally massive reductions in in uh, government spending. Yes. Okay. Okay. And yeah. I would and, and uh, Trump, I think, actually just called for all of his cabinet en- agencies to reduce spending by five percent. Right. Which, um, which you know, is one of those things that I think is a kind of across the board spending cuts is sort of a right. A, and again, it's it's a little yeah, it's a little yeah. silly because yeah. because some places need cuts more than others. Except and, defense, which apparently we are we are committed to I having. You know, we're not big enough yet in defense, and in fact, the Congress keeps on appropriating even more than the administration asked for, which is one of those things that just drives me absolutely nuts. But that's a, that's another story. So right. so yeah. Well, I get you know. I guess it's fair to say that you know I I would agree that. It's oftentimes premature to judge these things after even, you know, a year or, or a couple of years. But I would also assume that there are circumstances under which you would be inclined to conclude that the tax cuts didn't work. Right. I mean, you're not a this isn't an, it, this isn't an <laughs> article of faith that. for you, is it? I, well, in, in some ways, I, I think it is. I mean, uh so evidence um, doesn't matter. I mean, you're just going to assume that tax cuts are always a good thing, no matter well, what no, the I evidence mean, shows. If, you're, if the question is, um, I'm not sure what you mean by by didn't work. Uh, I guess you know. I, I I look at okay, we've got we had sort of of growth below two per two percent, and now we've got uh, growth uh, double that. Um, we've got you know more jobs than than people, lowest unemployment in. Uh, uh, 50 years, uh, wages are going up. We've had more reinvestment uh, by companies. Uh, so much of the other uh, on this uh, tech stuff is because companies are able to take the immediate deductions uh, for for new purchases uh, uh, as opposed to amortizing them. Um, you know, so it's so yes, in, in that that you know frame, I, I think it has worked. Now, if you're going to say has it worked in reducing the deficit uh, over the first year, no. But I think uh, growth is the only way uh, forward because uh, it's it's much more difficult to cut these programs. And if the suggestion is that uh, if you had a Democratic uh, uh, Congress, uh, they would be more circumspect with uh, public spending. I I I, no, I think I, you're mistaken. I think they would be more more inclined to to to, to raise taxes, and that's uh, if it's done the right way. That's exactly what I would like to see. But um, you know, I, I would my, also. My concern, just yeah, to finish finish the yeah. thought, would be, and what happens then is, you raise taxes and uh, you end up killing that growth. You end up killing that employment, um, and and you're not changing the spending picture. The spending picture will always increase. Um, you need growth to counterbalance it. Yeah, well, I, and I I certainly don't disagree with the importance of growth. I would say it's a matter of how the taxes are, uh, how the tax system is, is set up because you don't want a tax system, of course, that discourages growth. But I think that, you know, and I, you, you probably recall that I actually thought that a lot that was done in terms of the corporate tax cuts was, right. was necessary. So I'm not changing my I'm position. I'm surprised to be hearing all of this. No, no, no. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm pointing out is that, so I'm not, I'm not changing my position just because it's, you know, convenient at, at this point in time from a, from a, from a partisan standpoint. But, but what I'm saying is that we need to, 
look at how we've structured this system. And I believe there are ways by by raising individual taxes, by essentially, you know, I think the corporate part of it, there's there's a lot to be said for that. But on the individual side, I think we've got some major problems and there are too many people in that top, you know, in that top one percent, five percent who just aren't paying anywhere close to what I would consider to be their fair share and they need to pay more. That's how I feel about it. So uh, and I also feel that we need to raise taxes a lot more on financial middlemen as opposed to manufacturers and people who are creating the jobs and creating real tangible things in this economy. I think that's a that would be a very important thing to do. So Eat the rich. Yeah. Well, no. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Anyway. On that note, before before we uh, before we move on, we want to thank uh, our newest supporters, uh, Adam, who is a, a, a new supporter through PayPal. He wrote in to say, "I've been enjoying your weekly show for the last year now, and I figured it was time to kick in a little." Thanks. Well, thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Yeah. And then there's there's Gnome, who also is a new contributor through PayPal, who writes, uh, hey, guys, longtime listener, second time supporter here. I'd like to thank you for bringing more diverse voices to the show. Here's to a more nuanced and inclusive discussion. Well, thank you, Gnome. And we're, we're happy to bring in uh, different voices uh, uh, to, to kind of give us some other perspectives, which you've been doing lately. Uh, then there's Dave, a new Patreon supporter who writes, I've enjoyed listening to you guys for the nearly... For nearly two years now, and I figured it was only fair for me to help support the cause. I don't awesome. have, yeah, I, I thought so too. I don't much of political background, Dave writes, and frankly, not even much interest in politics. But the 2016 election was such an eye-opening experience for me because it showed just how segregated, segregated we become in our politics, in our news consumption, in our worldview. Though I consider myself a conservative independent, I live in a very progressive college town. Living in this thought bubble where 90% of my neighbors and Facebook friends I hear you, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> are to the left of me ideologically, I was literally stunned when Trump won. Rather than demonizing the people who voted for him, which I sadly see too much of, I figured what I needed most was to seek to understand the other side of the coin. So the first thing I did after the election was to get off Facebook, and the second was to look for news media where I could hear thoughtful dialogue that represented both sides of a particular issue. I was so pleased to find you guys and have been a loyal listener ever since. Though I typically fall somewhere between you and Jay, I feel bad that he gets such a hard time from listener feedback. (laughs) While his pragmatic and rational response to certain issues often is what gets him in trouble, I find it to be a particularly valuable aspect of the show. We could all use a lesson in stepping back from the emotional ledge and taking a well-reasoned approach to important issues. I appreciate you continually coming to his defense and reminding folks that conservatives generally aren't heartless monsters. Generally. Um, generally. Keep up the good work and best of luck to all of you. I thought that was a great comment. That was very nice. Dave, yeah, I think it's so much in fitting with what we try to do with the show, and that's why I wanted to read out the whole thing. Thank you so much for, for your support and that comment. Then there's also Nick. Nick's been a sustaining supporter of Patreon for a while. He recently doubled his monthly, doubled his monthly pledge of support, and that's just great. Thank you so much, Nick. And of course, you know, we really appreciate the support. And when you become a supporter, not only do you get that kind of warm glow of satisfaction of supporting what we're doing, but you also get access to our special special supporters only after show. Last week on the show, Trey and Alexandra talked about uh, the Trump administration's response to the latest UN climate report, the Fed's move to raise interest rates. And this week, Jay and I got some stuff lined up for you that we think you will like as well. So if you want to support the show, uh, just go to politicsguys.com slash support and uh, or just go to politicsguys.com if you want to click on support, you know, and then you'll find the Patreon or PayPal links. It really helps us out. We greatly appreciate it. All right. So moving on this week, the Department of Health and Human Services announced a new rule that would require drug makers to include the the list price for a 30-day supply of any drug covered under Medicare or Medicaid that they advertise, which really covers nearly any drug that would be advertised in the first place. Now, the rule is currently in the draft status, but it's intended by the administration as the move toward greater price transparency, which they believe will make consumers more price conscious and then by extension, force drug companies to lower their prices. Now, interestingly, only hours before the announcement, Pharma, which is the drug industry's lobbying group, they announced a voluntary action in which drug companies would post prices on their websites. 
And the administration responded to this saying, well, that's not nearly enough because there's a big difference between directing consumers to a website and having price information right there in the ad. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the drug company's argument is that including pricing information in ads would be confusing, misleading, and that it, quote, isn't what consumers want, though I'm not sure what their basis is for that last bit. Um, they, well, I'm assuming they don't want something that's con- confusing or misleading. Sure, I, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I don't know why they think that. But anyway, um, they also suggested that, this re- that a requirement like this could raise some First Amendment issues, and I'm guessing on the grounds that it's compelled speech. Compelled speech. But in a number of similar instances, courts have upheld the government's authority to compel companies to provide essentially transparent pricing uh, information. Now, to me, Jay, this is one of these instances where I occasionally and sort of oddly find myself, and that's su- <laughs> no, supporting a Trump administration initiative. Um, I know. But, but that said, I honestly don't think it's going to do a whole lot to alter consumer behavior or to lower prices. Um, but I could be wrong about that, certainly. And, and I feel that it's, it's, it's worth trying. And other things being equal, more price transparency is a better thing. Uh, I, I would, what I would hope is that the administration could get behind something I think could really move the needle on this. Like, for instance, letting Medicaid negotiate prices with drug makers or allowing importation of drugs for Canada. But that's not something I see happening, given you know the clout of of the pharmaceutical industry. So I was curious about your take on this. Well, I mean, one, you'll you'll see how much clout the pharmaceutical industry has. Um, this may not even happen. Uh, I mean, with, that's with, yeah, with, point with, out. with uh, how this plays out. Um, my my sense is actually, I would uh, tend to uh, side with the folks at the pharmaceutical industry who have said. This is sort of uh, will, will be not helpful, and will just be, tend to be confusing, um, uh, because most what, what they're talking about is the list price, which almost no one pays. Uh, you know, everyone will pay something different uh, based on their insurance, uh, based on other discounts, um, uh, based on you know bulk bulk discounts of, of where you, where you get it uh, based on whether you're buying the name name brand or the uh, generic equivalent. Um, so so I think there's there's room for a lot of uh, confusion. And what it's going to come out looking as is oh these these drugs are incredibly overpriced. But when you figure no one actually does that, the the more insidious uh, uh, part of this I think goes to. Um, you know, looking at uh, the you know profit margins that there, I think there was part of the rule that, that dealt with that. That, um, and and if you look at um, profit margins per drug, uh, it, you know they they are the drugs that succeed are are extremely high, uh, but that doesn't take into account the you know the almost eighty percent that don't make it past uh, trial. Um, so you know my my sense is again I'm just going on on general conservative principles. Um, if, if, uh, if, if the pharmacies believe they can, they can do, do good for consumers, uh, by advertising this and increase their sales, they will, uh, I'm, I'm not crazy about having the government weigh in, uh, saying more about what they have to do commercial on, on commercials. Okay. Um, well, yeah, and that's, and I mean, all, all, all that said, I, I think actually, I mean, pharmaceutical commercials are, are probably one of the greatest sources of entertainment um in in today's media yeah yeah uh, you, you're just, of course referring to i, I assume in part the the, the the half of each ad that the side yeah. effects yeah yeah side effects may include uh, death, so i mean know. it's one of those again you have a 30 second ad and, and you know three seconds are are devoted uh to what what this can do for you and and the other um uh, you know 27 seconds are the potential side effects and then now we'll add in the price and you can you know, I don't know if they can do the price if depending on this insurance or that insurance or if you buy generic or all that. And um, I think what, what might happen in a lot of cases is uh, pharmaceutical companies, should this rule go through, just say, all right, we're just we're just not going to advertise it like that. So, yeah, well, you know, to me, I, I, thought, I thought an interesting way to look at this is this actually can fit into the president's kind of we're getting ripped off. The United States is getting ripped off here because uh, you can make a really good argument that essentially high drug prices in the U.S. essentially subsidize lower prices in much of the rest of the world and that we're being played for suckers by the pharmaceutical industry. And that seems to be kind of a very populist type of argument. And certainly the Trump administration has claimed that they're interested in reducing 
pharmaceutical prices, and that, and that would that would fit with that. And I think that's a that's a reasonable argument to make because, of course, that's what pharmaceutical companies do is because they're forced to charge lower prices in countries that regulate these things. Then they have to make they they feel they they make up for it somewhere, and they can charge you know sky's the limit type prices in the United States. And and we've talked about this before. We have a weird healthcare system in this country compared to the rest of the world. A, a weird, awful healthcare system uh, compared well, to the rest it, of the look world. Look at this. The the um the price though of, of pharmaceuticals in terms of total medical care is is really still a, a pretty small percentage. Um, I'm thinking somewhere in the neighborhood of three percent. Now that's taken overall, of course. Now if you've got something that is, uh, you know, there there are certain certain drugs that are are in themselves extremely expensive. So if you happen to be on one of those, you're obviously outside the average, and it doesn't, you know, that's sort of cold comfort to you to say, well, on on average, it's it's not so much. Um, but uh, I I think that's with with those situations, they're sort of few and far between, and and. Um, you know, probably the one of the reasons is that uh, there it's either rare or serious conditions, and and uh, the, the what you have to go through to get the drug approved is is so much, and then there's sort of a very small market for it uh, on the other side. Um, but that's that's I guess that's neither here nor there. That's just sort of sure the general economics of the yeah. thing. Um, but I, I I don't see the rule. Uh, doing much uh, than than just adding another a burden to uh, uh, pharmacy companies. I don't think it's going to help consumers, or I don't think it'll really lower prices either. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. And I also wanted to mention on the First Amendment issue. I think that's kind of a sort of a ridiculous argument, especially because that there the rule is being framed as a requirement for drugs that are covered under Medicare or Medicaid. So in other words, then it becomes not a compelled speech issue, but sort of a condition a of coverage. It's like, yeah. well, if you want this covered under Medicaid, you have to do this. And that changes the nature of the issue. So, but I actually wouldn't be surprised if this never goes into effect. I mean, we'll see, but, uh, but I, I'm skeptical. Well, and just, just so everyone understands, because this is a good op or a learning opportunity here about, about the rulemaking process. And what you've yeah. got is you get a draft rule and then it gets published. And then we're not even to the draft rule yet. Uh, and then there's what's called the public comment period. Right. People uh, come it's kind in. Kind of a and, joke. I mean, the public doesn't really comment. It's sort of interest well, groups comment, and there are robo comments and that sort of thing. But there's very little public in the public comment period. Well, in in the though no, in some ways though, I mean, there's a public comment section uh, where and the industry ought to certainly be involved, right? I mean, that that's. Um, oh, I'm not saying that they uh, shouldn't be allowed say, to comment. So here, sure. Here, here, it's you know they can they can make the case of. Look, uh, this rule's problematic. This part of it's problematic. But if you did it this way, uh, it, it could be workable. Uh, and that's, I think that's beneficial, that part of the public comment thing. Um, you know, not, not so much the robo comments, uh, but. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, uh, Jay, we're, we're, we're running a, a little bit long, but before we, before we do go, I want to get into what we're, what we're reading. Actually, this week, there's, I, I wanted to talk about not a thing that I'm reading, but uh, an app that I recently downloaded. So something okay. a little bit different. Yeah. Um, so there's this, there's this app called Outvote and maybe some listeners have heard of it, but basically the idea is you download this app and it syncs to your contacts. It finds everyone in your contacts who lives in a swing district. And then it lets you know who these people are. And it gives you a reminder to, Essentially, send them a text or send them Hassle a reminder them relentlessly. To, to vote, basically, because what, <laughs> what, what political science research has found is that personalized messages from somebody, you know, are way more effective to get people to come out and vote than anything else. And so they're kind of combining that research with the, you know, the social aspect with with, uh, you know, making this app. And uh, it, it's interesting now. I should point out this app only focuses on this is a a liberal app. This is the designed to help Democrats. <laughs> you, don't, you don't say. But but I would say that if there is a conservative version of this, I would certainly promote that as well, you know, uh but uh, that, as far as I know there isn't so listeners if you know of something let me know. Um I just thought it was a really fascinating use of social technology and smartphones and, you know, all the big data that we have to kind of combine all these things together. That said, and maybe this is just because I'm, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm uh, older and, and, and more skeptical, but 
I, I got to say, it made me a little uncomfortable when I downloaded the app and it kind of went through my contacts and just kind of synced all that and told me this stuff. And it was, I felt like there was a bit of a privacy issue for me. And I said, well, should I have done this? And then I started to get messages it's from a them. It's privacy issue for you. It's a privacy issue for all the other people whose, whose information you just sold. You know, yeah, that, 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 that's a good point as well. So, you know, I, I, I'm a little leery of these things. And that, I think, that's in part a generational thing. Because, you know, you and I, I think, came up, came, you know, came of age in, in an era where, where privacy was still sort of a thing. <laughs> and it's much well, it's less. Not, I wouldn't say privacy. Was, it's not like you sat around thinking about, oh, I'm so no, happy, no, no. I'm, I'm so private. It's, it's just you, you didn't, uh, the, the whole notion of all these of people knowing all this other stuff about you uh, just wasn't there. Yeah. But, but, but I think, you know, there, there's two sides of this coin. For, for people who, if you really want to make an impact, something like this can really potentially leverage your context and your information to help you make a, a much more of a difference than you could have otherwise. But the downside is, well, you know, that, that loss of privacy. And so it's, it's sort of a, you know, a, I find it just a really interesting use of technology, but I'm just skeptical in general of giving away so much of my privacy. In this case, I thought, well, I'm willing to do that given sort of the stakes in the election and I'll see kind of who's in these swing districts and that sort of thing. But I got to say, I'm still a little uneasy, but if you are uh, left of center and you want to try this out, you know, I'll put a, I'll put a link to it in there, but uh, I certainly understand folks who are a little bit, uh, a little bit hesitant about that sort of thing. You know, I could, I could do a show just on, just on that, but just on, just on your concerns about privacy or it's, it's only, no, it is, it's the, uh, um, Gosh, if only uh, liberals had access to Facebook um, to to post. Political <laughs> well, you know, it's, but it's more than that. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, to, me, to me, I just I'm just saying I, I think it's going to come across as like, oh, my gosh, there's another crazy political post from from that guy I went to college with. You know what I mean? That's sort of, yeah. Well, I think the difference here is it's not so much like a social media post, but it's you reaching out to your friend who lives in some really close district saying, hey, I don't know if you know, but the election's really close and this could make a difference. And so it's more of a personal thing than kind yeah. of a broadband sort of thing and that respond leave me the hell alone yeah you don't even live here yeah I'm, I'm no longer your friend because of this <laughs> certainly but so that's a risk you got to take i guess so so anyway but i did want to mention that and uh with that i think uh we're we're, we're about done but before we do oh, can i can i do one like quick plug oh definitely absolutely this you is, do I don't I really one. no please do no i would say podcast you know i say i never listen to podcasts that's and I right really don't um uh but uh, have you heard of this podcast called Serial Mike? Serial, uh, oh yeah, Cereal, yeah. They're, you familiar with it? Yeah, you heard of these guys? Yeah, um, <laughs> they're, they're a little bigger than we are, just slightly, um, but yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, this year uh, they are focusing on the Cuyahoga County justice system. Oh, there you um, go. So it's something that that hits close to home, um, and and it's it's sort of fun listening. And uh, again, it's it's focused on the, the criminal justice aspect as opposed to the civil justice stuff. Um, but for those who are interested in getting maybe a little taste of, of, of my world uh, or, or how uh, courts of the justice system works, um, uh, it's fantastic and, and eye opening. And, um, uh, you know, I could tell you stories um, anyway. So I, I was just going to plug that just sort of like, sure. a, you know, civic boosterism for my hometown. And, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You know, and before we do go, uh, just to let everyone know that uh, just after we're done with this show, Jay and I will be recording that bonus special supporters after show. And uh, this week, I think uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Elizabeth Warren's DNA test, uh, which is uh, that was a big topic on a Facebook group uh, this this week. And also on a more kind of substantive policy related thing, there's a, a, a big, a new rule that has gone into effect that affects uh, student loans that, uh, that the uh, Betsy DeVos education department kind of uh, first, first were, were uh, definitely very much against, and now they're sort of reluctantly going to follow through with. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. That should be interesting. I think so. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're a supporter and if you are a supporter, it should be waiting for you by the time you hear this. That is if I do my job, right. And let's, hope I do. If you're not a supporter, again, to get access to that, politicsguys.com slash support, and you can just take care of that right away and get that, get, uh, get that show. 
All right. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening. We do hope you like what you heard. And even if you're not a financial supporter, if you're, you know, broke, destitute, whatever, it's just you and your, you and your podcast app, you could still help us out. And we would really appreciate it by uh, subscribing to the show, by sharing episodes, by leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes or whatever app you're listening to. That would cost nothing. That doesn't cost a single penny. Absolutely. Just a little bit of time. And also we really love to hear from you. If you've got a question, comment, if you heard something, Dan, you're like, my God, what? were those guys saying or my mic is just insane on you this you always or, like encourage people like that i, I do i do absolutely you know i but i i do i want to hear more of that so it's mail at politicsguys.com you could also comment on the shows on our on our website politicsguys.com there are comment sections in there and also on our facebook page facebook.com slash politics guys page and again we're also finally on twitter at politics guys the executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. And should finally mention, just before we leave, remember that listener survey about a host. We'd really appreciate if you could fill that out. All right, we'll be back with a new show on Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.